Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, August 10th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're getting things off to a little different start than usual this week. We're going to talk about foreign policy and national security, uh, what with tensions running very high with North Korea right now. We'll also uh, talk a little bit about President Trump's poll numbers. We are going to have our polling analyst in the studio to break down not just President Trump's approval, but some of the numbers behind those numbers, getting into the intensity of his support and this question of just how big Trump's base is. And we'll also talk about how the answer to that question is going to affect policy dealings for the White House uh, through 2017 and into next year and the uh, next round of congressional elections. And for our final segment this week, we'll talk about the new White House chief of staff. John Kelly uh, will be marking two weeks on the job next week. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he's done so far and just as importantly, what he hasn't done so far. A couple of things before we jump into that discussion. Remember, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have any questions for us. And please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. We want your feedback so we can keep improving the show and expanding the audience. All right, and here's who we're talking with this week. We have White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. And here uh, for the first time, we have uh, Politico Pro Defense editor and reporter Brian Bender. Brian, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, I feel like whenever we have the foreign policy or defense folks on, it means we have something kind of kind of scary or terrifying, terrifying actually. To talk and, about. and we have you on to tell us how terrifying. Yeah. So, our first data point this week is uh, 30 to 60. That's the experts' estimate of how many nuclear weapons North Korea currently has. And tensions are running especially high this week. The Washington Post reported uh, earlier this week that U.S. intelligence officials have concluded North Korea has successfully miniaturized a warhead that it could put atop one of the uh, missiles it's been testing. And President Donald Trump responded from his golf course in New Jersey. Take a listen here. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. So, Brian, easy question. Your, your first question on the nurse is, what happens next? <laughs> Where do we go from here? Well, you know, I think there's no doubt that the international community has kind of crossed a threshold when it comes to North Korea. I mean, North Korea is not a new problem. It's been a problem since the Korean War, which never really ended. I mean, there was an armistice, a ceasefire, if you will, but never a peace treaty. And there's been this standoff for all of these years. But what is different now is... It's not really theoretical anymore that, oh, they might get a nuclear weapon. They might get missiles that could hit the U.S. All of the intelligence reports that we're aware of, as you pointed out, uh, conclude they do have nuclear weapons. And in addition to that, they now have missiles that it looks like are advanced enough that they could hit the continental U.S. So I think it explains why tensions are so ratcheted up. I think it, it also explains why President Trump sort of said something that I think some people were surprised by, something sort of very bellicose. But I think it, you know, it demonstrates how he is frustrated uh, 
And he's sort of speaking in some ways or reflecting 50 years of frustration all pent up that this is a problem we can't deal with. We have this reclusive regime that kind of does whatever it wants and now can truly thumb its nose at the world because it has these nuclear weapons and these missiles that could launch them. I don't know if that answers your question about what's next. I think it's my way of saying I have no idea. Right. Well, And, and I don't think anybody else does either. Exactly. Um, meanwhile, I mean, we've got – you said what, what Trump said was very surprising. And we've, we've had the um, – certainly in terms of the, the type of language at least. And, and uh, then, you know, the next day we saw White House aides kind of anonymously walking it back saying that it was off the cuff. This is something we've seen before but maybe not with these stakes around them. Right, Nancy? Yeah. I mean basically we had White House aides saying, oh, well, uh, you know – you shouldn't always take his words literally. And you had uh, the Secretary of State Tillerson really trying to come in and, you know, appease uh, North Korea and, and, you know, say that this is not, you know, Americans should sleep well tonight and we shouldn't worry about it. But the thing is, is that, you know, and, and you also have the added thing of General Kelly, who's the new chief of staff, and, and this narrative has been that he's really going to discipline the White House and, you know, make sure everyone stays on message and obviously is very uh, well-versed in foreign policy. But the fact of the matter is, is that Trump is really an improviser on all policy and makes a lot of policy on the fly. And, you know, he decided to say this at an event at ben- in Bedminster, New Jersey, where he was supposed to be talking about opioid abuse. And he had talking points about the opioid abuse in front of him and sort of said this language off the cuff, uh, much to the horror of diplomats. And so it was another case of the White House having to do cleanup, except you're right, Scott, the stakes this time are so much higher than they were on, let's say, trying to pass a health care bill. This is about really, you know, nuclear warheads and nuclear missiles and major diplomatic gaffes. So, so Brian, you, you artfully danced around the question of what's what's next before. But I mean, what what should we expect over the next few days, few weeks? Um, there, there's been a lot of talk about Guam and whether or not it's going to be a target. Something that has happened in the past, we should say. Like there, these threats have been. This is not the first time these threats have been made uh, against against that right. particular island. I remember it was years ago now, but there was, you know, another period of tense relations with the North. It may have been under George W. Bush where the North Korean leader at the time warned about destroying Los Angeles or Los Angeles would be destroyed in a sea of fire or some some melodramatic comment like that. So yes, we've seen this before. I think going forward, what we're already seeing, some of it is public. Nancy mentioned Secretary of State Tillerson trying to sort of calm everybody's nerves here. It's not that bad. We're not ready to go to war. I also think behind the scenes, there's a lot of speed dialing going on between the Pentagon their counterparts in Japan and South Korea, assuring them that our policy hasn't changed. We're not on the warpath. Nobody wants that because, you know, truthfully, they're the ones that are probably going to get hit first before we would. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of Japan and South Korea, you mean. Japan and South Korea, mm-hmm. because they're in the region. We know their missiles can reach those targets. So I think behind the scenes, trying to make sure that the allies are calm. And also, I think some you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some back-channel messages being sent to the North Koreans to make them understand that the policy hasn't changed, that we still want to negotiate our way out of this. I mean, we have differences of opinion about what those negotiations would look like. The North Koreans don't want any preconditions. We want the preconditions, of course, to be that they're willing to give up their nuclear and missile programs. Um, but I think, you know, we could see as a result of this a positive outcome, which is that the push for negotiations gets a little more traction on all sides. Because, because the, the pressure is ratcheted Because up right the North now. Koreans know that, and, and uh, you know, some of the sources I were talking to said that, you know, the message to the North Koreans behind the scenes 
is not that different from what Trump said. I mean, it's a little bit less dramatic, but it's basically your nuclear weapons are not usable because if you use them, it's the end of your country. And I think making them understand that combined with the sort of bellicose Trump talk, you know, could make them rethink maybe we should find a way to get to the table because, you know, everybody knows that if this pressure keeps building and building and building, it doesn't end well. And I think everybody understands that. At least that's the hope. And just in diplomatic circles, I mean, one thing that I've noticed covering the White House is, and this is not a revelatory statement, but, you know, the president isn't really careful with the way that he uses language. And, you know, that can mean different things according to the situation. But I feel like in diplomatic circles, the language can be very coded and can mean certain things when you're talking to different countries. So when the president talks about like fire and fury, what does that mean? Like what would the North Koreans hear then? What What is actually at stake then? Well, I think it's what struck a lot of people is that it sounded like something that North Korea would say, not something that a an American leader would say. Um, but, you know, I think we saw yesterday that, that this did not go over well anywhere, really. I mean, the New Zealand leader had some pretty harsh comments about it. Obviously, there in the region, the Chinese were very critical of it, that this does not help the situation. All it does is risk miscalculation. You know, it's very difficult to know how the North Koreans read it. I mean, they probably read it. I mean, they could read it as a threat that the United States is willing to use a nuclear weapon first, which a lot of the experts would say is the last kind of message we want to send to them because, you know, they might say, you know what, we have nothing to lose anymore. We might as well use these things. And I think one other point that a lot of people have made is that the more the president does this, says these bellicose things, off-the-cuff remarks that his people then have to clean up, uh, the more he's weakening his credibility internationally. Because if all those speed dialings are going on behind the scenes where Jim Mattis, the secretary of defense, is calling his counterparts in Korea and Japan to to tell them, listen, basically don't listen to him, how much credibility is he really going to have? And you you just brought up Mattis. Nancy, you mentioned kind of the the coded nature of of some – the public communication sometimes in situations like this. And Mattis himself issued a a statement – yesterday uh, that that was – I mean it, it, it certainly wasn't a soft statement, but I think a lot of people were focusing right on, on what it said at the end. The, the last sentence was the, the North Korean regime's actions will continue to be grossly overmatched by ours and would lose any arms race or conflict it initiates. And those, those two words say everything, right? It's, a, it's kind of reaffirming that the U.S. does not want to shift to a first strike right. well, attitude. Whether it was coordinated or not – you know, in this administration, it's very difficult to know if anything is coordinated. But you could almost see Tillerson playing a little bit of the good cop yesterday. But Mattis playing the role of a bad cop, not as bad of a cop as Trump was the right. day before, <laughs> but, but you still need the good cop, bad cop. In other words, we want to work our way through this. We want to find a way to settle this diplomatically. However, the North Koreans should understand that this is a losing game for them in the end. Uh, if they think that militarily they can somehow threaten us and it's going to get them anywhere. What I was struck by in Mattis's statement, and you just touched on it, was if they initiate a conflict. Right. And I think that's where people were really flummoxed by Trump's statement because you could go back to the presidential campaign and Hillary Clinton at one point said that if North Korea ever used a nuclear weapon, it would be the end of North Korea. It was a very strong statement. But it was about... North Korea starting the war, whereas Trump's comments two days ago were very unclear. He said if they keep threatening us, 
there will be fire and fury. And that, I think, is what worried people the most, is that this was a comment that did not make clear that we will destroy you if you decide you want to use these weapons that you've developed. And I think that's why Mattis was very clear about that. This is right. – we will go after you, but not a first strike. And I think that's important to reduce the risk the North Koreans will just go crazy. What does this say about Kelly's you know, first two weeks as chief of staff? I mean he understands foreign policy much more so than Reince Priebus, his predecessor. So what does this mean if this happens under his watch? It's a good question. I mean, I think everybody wants to know how much control. It seems clear that Kelly's been verbally given a lot of control. Now, whether that translates into sort of daily control, I mean, I think is still unclear. And I, and I also think that we need to remember that, that this comment from the president was in response to a shouted question from a reporter. So he didn't just sound off. I mean, in other words, if the reporter never asked that question, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, who knows? Maybe he would have tweeted something bellicose. I mean, it's a big unknown. But, you know, I think John Kelly himself, from what we've reported, has, has said to people around him, listen, I'm not going to control the president. I can control the process here, the policymaking machine. The staff. Can, the staff, who gets in to see him and when and what kind of paper he sees and try to limit the number of, like, wacky things that get, you know, handed to him in the Oval Office. But I don't think anybody has any illusions, particularly John Kelly, that he's going to be able to stop the president from just, you know, blowing off some steam. Yeah, we will. We'll jump into that and a lot more later. We've got a full segment about Kelly. Brian, thank you for being here. I think uh, we should we should have you back at some point to to talk about something more more fun. <laughs> um, but th- thank you very much for uh, for fun. taking the time to join the Nerdcast. All right, we're going to jump into our next segment, but first let's take a quick break to hear a message from a Nerdcast sponsor. Okay, for part two of today's episode, we are going to talk about Trump's polling. And here to do that, we have Politico's chief polling analyst, Steve Shepard. Thank you for coming on, Steve. Thank you for having me, Scott. And also joining us in the studio, as usual, we have senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Charlie, thanks thanks for showing up. Hello. <laughs> uh, all right, our data point is 18%. That is the shrinking share of registered voters who strongly approve of President Trump in the latest Politico morning consult poll even as Trump claims on Twitter that his base is bigger and better and more unified than ever. And so, again, that's strongly approve as opposed to the total approve. And there are polls that kind of break this down by intensity. So, Steve, break this down further for us. Not only has Trump's approval rating slowly slid down during his presidency, but it's that intensity. The intensity of support has also waned. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've been tracking this week over week since uh, Trump was inaugurated on, on January 20th, and 18 percent is the lowest we've recorded in his strong approval rating. Uh, the overall approval rating of 40 percent is also the lowest we've ever recorded. Uh, so, yes, this is unquestionably the, the low point so far in his presidency, and you're seeing that in other surveys as well. Just in the past week or so, Quinnipiac University, 33 percent, CNN, 38 percent, CBS News, 36 percent. And these These are are, the overall. These are overall approval ratings. These are the low watermarks that we're seeing. Um, Look, we we wanted to get at what because uh, President Trump has been talking about his base uh, being stronger than ever. We wanted to get at who really is this base. And and so we've kind of come down to this 18 percent. Uh, that are that are with him strongly strongly approve of the job he's doing even uh, among all of the headwinds the Russia investigation uh, uh, the difficulty in in getting uh, healthcare legislation advanced through Congress uh, or any real legislative achievement uh, we wanted to really get at that and 
One of the things when you slice this 18 percent that, that's really interesting is, is we looked at Trump voters, people who said, I voted for, for President Trump. Uh, only 41 percent of those Trump voters who make up, you know, about 45 percent of our poll, because that's around the percentage that he got on Election Day, he got 46 percent. Uh, only 41 percent of them are in the strong approval camp. Wow. So if, if we're talking about his electoral base and, and if he's talking about his electoral base as being the people to whom he's really trying to govern, uh, those folks, there are a good chunk of them who maybe they don't disapprove of the job he's doing, but they're not with him 100 percent the way he, he claims. And Charlie, this is not just an academic exercise. This is not just a, a kind of following the horse race situation. Like This has effects, right? And we've talked about the effects that the unity among his base has had on Congress in the past, and but a fracturing or, or shrinking of his base will, will have real effects on his presidency and, and on Congress dealing with him, right? Sure. I mean, the, the tweet that everyone noticed, the, the president uh, claimed that his base was bigger and more unified than ever. It is absolutely not true that it's bigger than ever. We know that for certain from all of the data that's out there. Whether it's more unified than ever, you know, that's, I think, arguable. One of the things that I think is really important for us in the media is to have a sense of modesty and humility after the uh, experience we had in November. And I'm still convinced or still not convinced that uh, modern polling is really able to capture, for whatever reason, the full extent of how people view Donald Trump because he's such a unique political character. But we know the base is not bigger based on the data. Now, having said that, why does all that matter for the point that Steve made, which is that the president won 46 percent. He wins the presidency with 46 percent, uh, which is the lowing, lowest winning percentage in roughly a, a quarter century for a president. And think of the presidents who won with less than a majority of the vote. Uh, George Bush in 2000, Bill Clinton twice, uh, and uh, Richard Nixon uh, way back in 68. All of them grew their base from, you know, Bush wins 48 percent and then in the reelect wins 51. Clinton wins 43 percent in 92. Then he comes back and wins 49 percent in 1996. Even Nixon wins barely a squeaker in 68 with 43 percent, comes back with 61 percent in 1972. And the point I'm making is all of them went to the hard task of growing a base, fixing the problems they had. Uh, building bridges and uh, expanding their coalition for the reelection. In Trump's case, though, it's hard to see how he is expanding beyond where he was. I mean, how many people is he winning over? He's got his own Trump base lockdown. And the Republican Party as a whole, even the ones who are maybe less than comfortable with him, they're still on board with him. But is he growing beyond 46 percent? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't see it. And for me, Bill Clinton is, is, is a great uh, uh, analog here winning 43% in that three-way race with, with Ross Perot in 1992. And one, in some ways, for the 1996 reelect, one of the best things that happened for Bill Clinton was having a Republican Congress as a foil. Government shut down. He was able to triangulate, as is the word that, that they were using in the mid-'90s, uh, off of that. For Donald Trump, if we believe that Republicans have this structural advantage uh, in the battle for the House and the Senate in, in 2018, and certainly it is the case at the Senate level— he may be in this same situation, squabbling with his own party for the next three years, and he won't have that foil until there's a legitimate Democratic opponent to run against when, when we get time to, to look at his reelection campaign. You don't think he's going to pivot to attacking John Delaney right away now that, now that John Delaney's in the presidential race? Sorry, Nancy, you were about to say something. Well, I just had a quick question, I mean, about how the poll numbers break down. Are people, you know, is, are people moving away from him or are people disappointed with him for specific things? Does the polling get into that? 
Like, is it Russia or is it legislative things or is it his tweets? So the, the legislative part, I think, is, is one of the most interesting things. There has been a steady decline over the over the 200 plus days of his presidency. But the two real uh, sharp ticks down have been after health care legislation uh, failed in, in Congress. And so that that seems to be the, the lack of accomplishment seems to be hurting him. You've seen because of that and because of the Russia story perpetuate, you've seen Trump and his his surrogates really try to emphasize uh, some of the good economic data that we've seen coming out. Unemployment continues to drop as it has been for, for nearly a decade. Uh, GDP numbers in the second quarter were very good. Um, He's touting those. But one of the interesting things that I just want to point to this one figure in CBS News poll this week, they asked, which is more important in evaluating Donald Trump? Is it the culture and values that you believe in or is it your economic and financial well-being? So it's not the economy as a whole, but your economic well-being. And more respondents, 48 percent said, uh, my culture and values are more important to me when I evaluate the president and who he is and, and how he's doing. Only 37 percent said it's their economic and financial well-being. So the argument that he can counter Russia, failure to get anything through Congress with saying, well, the economy continues to grow, unemployment continues to drop, that might not be the silver bullet for him. And that's so interesting because that is really what people in the administration are banking on, this sense that you know job numbers and you know if they do tax reform, they're, they're banking on the economic data to save them and to be the thing that connects with the middle class and connects with voters and sort of brings them out of the woods, even if they don't have a legislative victory. I also think what's interesting is you know their next major legislative priority if they get to it because they also have to raise the debt ceiling and and, uh, help Congress pass a budget is tax reform. And the polling that I've seen shows that, you know, Americans like aren't really clamoring for tax reform. I mean, you know, the country club, Republican, U.S. chamber, business community totally is. But if you ask normal Americans, it's not like the, the major thing that they necessarily want to see. And that is what they're going to do, try to do next. And and one of the least popular things over the last 10 years in, in Polling on on tax policy, one of the least popular things, cutting taxes for the richest Americans, cutting taxes for corporations. Very popular, cutting taxes for the middle middle class. And to the extent that what we see eventually, where that fits on that spectrum, I think will affect the popularity of that legislation. Seems like one unknown factor that that will come into play in in 2020 is maybe the the immigration push from the the Trump folks. If you look at the polling on the the latest proposal – you know, it is uh, it's fairly solidly in his camp. Uh, I think uh, it, it received a lot of negative uh, attention in the press. But if you look at the polling numbers for some of the English language requirements and some of the other provisions, uh, it, it, it has a majority among many Americans or parts of it, at least. I want to bring in uh, a little bit of history here. Some some pollsters have been asking this uh, uh, breaking down approval and disapproval for presidents by, you know, strong and somewhat approve, strong and somewhat disapprove uh, for a long time. And so we have a very nice historical record to look back on. And so uh, with Trump at 18 percent strong approval in Politico Morning Consult, he's at uh, 24% strong approval in CNN. Uh, if you look back at the ABC Washington Post poll has been asking this for a very long time. It's run by Langer Research. Uh, they've been asking that strong approve, strong disapprove question for a very long time. And the uh, you, you have to go to the summer and fall of 2011, probably the low point of President Obama's uh, first term. Uh, in order to find strong approval ratings that that low for the previous president. This is at the time when it, debt ceiling negotiations were ongoing and, and collapsing, and it looked like the economy might be going with it. And 
Um, it's it. I just think that's an interesting parallel, Steve, because as you as you mentioned, those issues are traditionally. Uh, what presidencies rise and fall with, and the the uh, the idea that that folks are judging potentially judging Trump a little differently uh, is very interesting to me. Although I do wonder if part of that is because people feel comfortable enough economically to judge him differently. That might be part of it. I think the other part is we've just never seen a president like Donald Trump, and so he commands uh, the news and attention. And it, I mean, it's a soap opera. And I, I think voters look at him differently than they looked at previous presidents. I want to give a shout out to Gary Langer and his team for uh, compiling those that data over over that uh, length of time. But and, and one, thing, one thing I would point <laughs> out to one no one thing I would point out is that that was Barack Obama's low watermark in 2011. He rebounded and he won in 2012. Yes, his approval rating was was very poor, really uh, not very poor compared to, to President Trump, but was mired in the, the mid 40s, really up until the final months of the 2012 campaign. Um, that will be, we, you know, we're still a ways out now. We're still still sort of three years out from that mark, uh, but it can it people can rebound. We're we're not burying Donald Trump's reelection chances right right here today. Right. And I was so surprised that, uh, you know, in some ways Mitt Romney lost 2012 because the economy was still not totally healthy during that election. And I think that had Mitt Romney bid a better candidate, uh, you know, he could have trumped. (laughs) 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 He could have trumped Obama because, you know, people weren't necessarily feeling economically secure. So I feel like whoever Trump, you know, if Trump decides to run in 2020, whoever he faces will also be sort of a key part of that equation. Well, that's actually a good point. I hadn't thought about it this way. But you're saying, you know, maybe Obama benefited from kind of a similar feeling as well, that people weren't necessarily judging him solely on their pocketbooks. It was kind of the, the values he was he was expressing and in yeah, his campaign. Yeah, and, and Romney just didn't run a great campaign. And he, you know, added Paul Ryan, who was talking about, you know, cutting Medicare and Social Security and his budgets at a time when, uh, you know, Romney could have come in and positioned himself as a much more of an economic savior. And Romney, in part because of his record and in part because of the Obama campaigns and, and their allies' attacks, uh, that made him a, a uniquely poor messenger for right. some of some of these economic arguments. With that CBS finding that I that I cited, it'll be interesting to see whom Democrats choose moving forward, because perhaps it's not the economic argument, and who knows where the economy will be in three years. Perhaps it's not the economic argument that will be most potent. Perhaps it'll be an argument about values. I've never been an adherent to the school of thought that says the economy is the, the determinant of the presidential election. I know there's a sort of a body of... of uh, what does the literature say? Yeah, the literature body of academic literature on <laughs> oh, that. Oh, my and I mean, goodness, Charlie, but, don't say that. No, I, I, what I'm saying is I don't necessarily – I, 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 what I'm saying is I don't necessarily <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> I don't coffee. I've never really bought that. I mean I think culture plays an equally important role uh, and also you know, factors like likability. Uh, it's all, it's often forgotten that uh, even when Barack Obama's numbers were not that great as approval ratings, his likability was always high when that was questioned. And uh, likability is, is is something that you know I think is often laughed at the idea that Americans always want to have a you know vote for the person they want to have a beer with, but it is an important component. Uh, in how Americans decide who's going to be their leader. They want somebody they can somehow associate with or that they like uh, in the Oval Office. Well, like Steve said, uh, we have a long way to go before uh, any of this matters in terms of the 2020 election, certainly, but even even the 2018 midterm. So we're going to continue to keep a, a close eye, not just on those approval numbers, but on that intensity of the approval. And we haven't even mentioned the disapproval. Strong disapproval is up near 
almost 50 percent in in a lot of these polls, which uh, which is pretty pretty remarkable in and of itself. But so we'll we'll be keeping an eye on that. Steve, thank you very much for coming in to break that down for us. Thanks again. All right, uh, we're going to jump into our next segment shortly. But first, let's take a break to hear about one of Politico's other podcasts. All right, our third and final segment this week is about John Kelly, the new White House Chief of Staff, and it is his 11th day on the job in in that capacity at the White House. That is our data point, the number 11. Nancy, there has been a lot of attention paid with, with this appointment, with this shakeup so early in Trump's presidency about what Kelly would change. And we, we talked about this a little bit in the first segment. There are some things he has changed and some things he hasn't. Clearly, you know, not all is well uh, right now. We talked about a scary situation with North Korea and these falling poll numbers and everything. But but some things have changed. So what what is happening? What ha- What is John Kelly doing in the White House so far? Well, I think he's doing a few things. First, you know, he came in on day one and fired the mooch immediately. Uh, which was, you know, a real, I, I think, sent a real message to the rest of the West Wing, like, look, I'm in charge. Um, you know, we're, I'm not going to have people off freelancing or, you know, saying this vulgar language or off doing their own thing. And I think that that sent a very clear message that that he, you know, how he was going to approach things. And on the personnel front, you know, I think right now he made that personnel change. And I think he's quietly evaluating the rest of the staff. And I think we could see more staff shakeups, you know, in the coming weeks and months. So stay tuned on that. But then secondly, the major thing that he's done is he's just tried to formalize the process. So, you know, under Ryan's Priebus, there was like kind of no process for me. And I'm talking about making policy. There was really no uh, process to make decisions. And that's not for lack of trying from Priebus's part, right? It's just that there were power centers that were kind of bucking his attempts to put them in in a structure. That's true. And also not everyone reported up through Priebus. So some people sort of went around Priebus to report directly to the president. And Priebus was never able to control access to the Oval Office, to control, you know, who was able to put information on the president's desk. Uh, You know, people would waltz in and out of the Oval Office or try to, you know, quietly catch some time with Trump. And a lot of times policy or not just policy decisions were made by whomever had the last word with the president, which is not really like a great way to go. Um, And so Kelly so far, you know, isn't formulating policy himself. He isn't telling the president necessarily what to do. He obviously is not controlling the president's Twitter feed, as I think we have seen, <laughs> and more on that in a minute. But he is sort of saying, like, look, these things have to go through me. If the tr- if the president's going to talk to a cabinet secretary, I'm going to be on the phone. You know, Ivanka and Jared, even the family members are reporting to Kelly so far, and they're sort of happy to be doing that. And so he's really putting in much more of a process. And so far, people in the West Wing are following it. I think the question, of course, is like, is that sustainable? How sustainable is it? You know, I have a story that's coming out, I think, tomorrow on all of this. So you all are getting a, a preview. But, um, you know, one of the things that someone close to Kelly told me was that it will be sustainable if they end up getting some wins out of this. You know, if they can put some points on the board and it's not so chaotic and there's not as much infighting, then it will hold. Did you notice he's on the cover of Time? Uh, <laughs> well, right. So that <laughs> which is like the kiss of death, yeah. honestly. I mean, like the president was not happy with Bannon being on the cover of Time. 
not happy with that Josh Green book about Bannon as like the mastermind behind the campaign. And so, you know, time putting Kelly on the cover does not do a lot of favors for Kelly internally. Yeah. And, and we've seen that before with Trump. And it's also, I think, a, uh, a trait of the sort of strongman American political leader is you cannot step on their feet. I mean, this was a problem. Remember, this is a problem with I've noticed with a lot of mayors. Uh, and this was a problem with, for example, Rudy Giuliani, folks who felt that their police chiefs uh, we're getting all the credit for reductions in, in crime statistics. And so I think Kelly has to be very cognizant of that. That Espe- is a great analogy. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, especially in, in light of uh, the Bannon experience that Nancy was talking about. Because uh, remember that some of the best quotes from that Josh Green book, what is it, Devil's Bargain? Uh, some of the best quotes were the ones where uh, Trump confronted uh, Manafort for uh, for this one wonderful story that appeared. I think it was in the New, Ta- New York Times. The story where uh, its campaign aides tried to talk to Trump through TV. It was a totally demeaning story. And it was uh, it was really amazing that the, the idea that his campaign aides felt that the best way to reach him and get information to him was to uh, talk to him through the press because his attention span uh, otherwise was so limited. And so there's this great scene in the, in, uh, the excerpts of the book where he says, you think I've got to go on, you've got to go on TV to talk to me? You treat me like a baby. Am I an effing baby, Paul? And, and you know, uh, the, the anecdote is great. And it also reminded me of that classic scene in Goodfellas, you know, where uh, Joe Pesci is like, am I a clown? Am I a clown to you? <laughs> you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. You know, and you can just imagine Trump losing it and confronting him that way. And I think that's what Kelly is going to be up against. I think the other thing about Kelly to note is that, you know, each of these different factions in the White House is really pushing a certain ideological agenda. And and the thing that my reporting has shown and this good Washington Post uh, story on Kelly's tenure so far made clear was that, you know, Kelly is not really that political. Um, you know, he's really going to be much more of a manager of the process, but he's not going to try to push like tax cuts going down a certain way or trade deals with China going down a certain way. And, you know, there's a few areas where I feel like we could see like a little bit more of his influence, particularly on the Afghanistan strategy, which has been an internal fight in the White House, only because he, uh, one source told me, you know, he really came up in, throughout his career with Mattis and McMaster and um, uh, one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dunford. And so, uh, you know, he has strong views on Afghanistan and foreign policy and also just like more aligned with those guys. And so we could see his influence there. But other than that, you know, he's not really like an ideologue like a lot of the other people in the administration. Yeah, there was a great line in that post story about uh, one of Kelly's first policy meetings in the White House and says, uh, the other officials in attendance tried to suss out where he stood on a debate roiling the Trump administration taxes. You know, what what would he back a uh, a sweeping overhaul of the tax code proposed by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin? Uh, would he sign off on raising taxes on the wealthy championed by Bannon? Kelly gave no hints, leaving some to wonder whether the new West Wing boss had a personal preference at all. As aides struggled to get a read on him, Kelly quipped that his position on taxes was that he pays them and he hates paying them. So, like, <laughs> the fun moment in that story, but it gets to what you're talking about, right? It's he's chief of staff, emphasis on staff, right, and managing this process and trying to organize the, the process of getting things to Trump as opposed to trying to organize and manage Trump himself. But I think the big question that everyone that I talked to had was, you know, you can make the process more uh, seamless and more organized. But if you yourself don't have control over the way the president speaks, you know, and carries himself and his what he tweets, 
Uh, and if he can still go rogue in that way, ultimately, you don't have any control. And I think that that's the thing that, you know, we have to wait and see. But if the North Korea example uh, shows us anything, you know, Kelly, I don't think wrote those words out. Trump sort of came up with that on his own. And so I think that is one example where we're seeing the limits of Kelly's power. And that could be a problem. I think it's a really smart point to make. Um, we can stipulate that. Let's just stipulate that. Uh, Kelly is changing the White House culture. There's more accountability, uh, limitations on Oval Office access, a staff that resembles, uh, you know, a more normal White House structure. Uh, he can ensure that bad information, photoshopped uh, crazy photos and fake news doesn't get to the president's desk. Even if all that happens, there are, I think, ultimately going to be limits on how successful he can be because of Trump's nature uh, and because he's so mercurial because of the way uh, he's operated his whole career. And it's important to keep in mind the point that we all, it feels like we always keep coming back to it on, the, on this podcast, which is the fact that he is a 71-year-old man who is not going to change. Uh, and I think that an, an, a comparison can be made between a White House that had sort of a similar disorganization problem, which was the Clinton White House, the early Clinton White House. Now, clearly, it didn't ha have the same kind of chaos and backstabbing and dysfunction that you see now. But, you know, in the early years, they really struggled. And remember, they brought in Leon Panetta, who was going to be the grown-up in the room, uh, the congressman, you know, well-respected. And over, over the course of time, you know, he's somebody who's really left his mark on the, on the public policy arena, you know, and uh, really won a lot of respect. So Panetta comes in and changes things and gets the White House, you know, more or less moving on an even keel. But there was one big difference. Bill Clinton at the time was not even 50 years old when Panetta came in. So he had spent a lot of time in public office, but he was not fully formed as a human being the way Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is over 70. So Bill, Clinton, my point is like Bill Clinton could change at that point. He, he wasn't quite, you know, he had a pretty healthy ego naturally, but he wasn't at the point in his life where Trump is right now. And I think ultimately that could be uh, the limit on what Kelly can accomplish. And I think I, just one other point I would add to that is that there's no reset button you can push, right? The ghosts of the pro problems past will continue to haunt the Trump administration as long as special counsel Robert Mueller is uh, pursuing this investigation into Russian meddling in the election. I mean, we saw the news this week that uh, the FBI raided former campaign chairman Paul Manafort's house. The White House is still going to be subject to this crazy swirl of events that has that follows Trump and his family wherever he goes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately, everything that Kelly does, that could overshadow it. Well, that's a that's a an uplifting, an note uplifting note. On. Yeah, it was, it was a very uplifting episode of the Nerdcast. We talked about nuclear war. We talked about uh, John Kelly's potentially feeble, feeble attempt. To, yeah. The president's never changing. Right. All right. Well, I guess that just about does it for us. Nancy, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Charlie, thank you as always. Scott, thank you so much for having me today. <laughs> Let's do this from the beach next week. <laughs> And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. Please also remember to subscribe, rate us, and if you have time, write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We really appreciate the feedback. So once again, thank you to our listeners. A big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, producer Rachel Cusick, illustrator Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.